0: We are back in the book of Samuel. I've enjoyed this sermon series through Samuel. I enjoyed uh, Mitch's sermon from Samuel as well. The stories that shape God's people. And it shaped Israel for thousands of years and has shaped the church. And today we're going to talk about Saul. We looked at Samuel's sort of farewell address, but we didn't talk much about Saul. Saul is Israel's first king. And he was chosen because Israel rejected the Lord and wanted to be like the nations. And they also, in a sense, rejected Samuel and his leadership as judge. You may remember, we mentioned this, that uh, Saul was literally head and shoulders above everyone else, a tall guy. Uh, He looks the part. He looks like a warrior. He looks like a leader. He looks like a king. And you can guess what happens Things don't go well. They go bad. Yet God gives Israel and the king an opportunity to repent and to obey. To turn away from sin and be restored. In the same way he does to us. Again and again. Gives us an opportunity to repent with true repentance and be restored. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15. It's 1 Samuel 15. Looking at verses 10 through verse 31 that God calls us to true repentance he calls us to true repentance we read this the word of the Lord came to Samuel I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments and Samuel was angry And he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, "'Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? "'The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, "'Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. "'Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? "'Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord?' And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours, Who is better than you? And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me before the the elders of my people and before Israel, in return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and study the application of his word. And we are looking at true repentance, and what we get with Saul is the opposite of that. So sometimes we learn better from failures than we do from successes, right? Uh, And the Bible shows us openly both. gives us examples of people who are faithful. We saw that with Hannah. We see that in many ways with Samuel. And we see those who fail, and we're called to learn from their example as well. And what we see here, where we're going in the sermon, in 10 to 16, true repentance grieves over sin. 17 to 23, true repentance turns to obedience. And then finally, in this final section, 24 to 31, true repentance is God-centered. And we'll see how, in many ways, Saul fails in true repentance. But notice that true repentance grieves over sin. Actually, interestingly enough, the first one to grieve or to regret here is God. It says, God regrets making Saul king. And and some of you guys might say, isn't there a little bit of a theological problem with that, Pastor Rick? How can God regret something? Actually, if you have the King James Version, it says, God repented that he made Saul king. How can God regret and repent? We went into some detail on this in the study last night, but I think it's a personification, an anthropomorphism, to use a big word, basically, God is described in human-like ways so that we can comprehend him. God, of course, is truly by sin. He doesn't like when we, as his children, his creatures, sin against him. Did God know he was going to sin? Of course. You could say, would God create Saul if he could do it all over again? Of course he would, because he knew it was going to happen and he still created Saul. But he's explaining it, the writer is explaining it, in a way that we can comprehend. And just to clarify, in verse 29, he says specifically, well, God is not a man that he should regret. So he even kind of clarifies that statement made here. The next one to grieve, though, is Samuel. Samuel, when he hears of Saul's sin, is at first angry. Angry that the man that he had made king is already turning away from obedience to the Lord. And then it says, he cries to the Lord, All night. Because he knows what this means. What's going on with Saul? Uh, We see that he makes a monument to himself. (laughs) So what's going on with Saul? He's starting to, it you know the old saying, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, power is getting to his head. He's making monuments to himself and he's leading through his own means rather than trusting the Lord. Samuel goes to meet Saul, he meets him at Gilgal, and notice the first words out of Saul, King Saul's mouth to Samuel, Uh, I've been good, (laughs) basically is what he says, I've obeyed the word of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord. You know the old saying, thou dost protest too much, right? But why does he jump right away? It's like when you meet a kid and you catch him in the middle of doing something bad and the kid says, I didn't do anything wrong, right? That's kind of what Saul is doing. I've obeyed the commandment of the Lord. And then Samuel responds, then why do I hear these animals in the background, this bleating of sheep and the lowing of cattle? He tries to make an excuse. He says, well, we, the, the people spared the, the best of the flock, so they could offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, doesn't, the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly, but how many people think here he's not telling the whole truth? Okay? Uh, we don't know. Um, I will say this. Even if he is telling the truth, even if he really did save all of these animals specifically so that he could offer them as a sacrifice, well, remember, you get to eat some of the sacrifice, right? So you get to benefit something from it yourselves. And I wonder if some of the people would say, well, you know, I I don't have to offer my own lamb or sheep now because I've offered one from this army. So it's replacing my own flock as well. But I wonder if in a sense there is a lie that he's trying to cover up here where he's planning on taking much of this home or sending it to his people. Saul has grown comfortable with his sin. That's what we see in this first section. I think we didn't really talk too much about Saul, but he actually started off okay. He started off really good. Um, he was humble. He didn't actually want to be king, even though he looked the part. Um, he was hiding among the baggage. Now, remember, he's like the tallest man in Israel, right? So, but he's trying to hide among the baggage when they're choosing a king. We didn't cover that here on a Sunday morning. He, he's, he's humble. He actually, when he does get chosen as king, he, he steps up to the plate. He defends Israel against Nahash. He goes and protects Israel. He goes to war against the, the Philistines. He has a son, Jonathan, who is a noble warrior and actually continues to be faithful even through the book of Samuel. I mean, he, he, is start, he, is, he, does, he starts off great as king and then he starts to slip. And what happened a few chapters back, for those who are reading Samuel on their own, is typically a priest would offer a sacrifice to the Lord before you go into battle. Saul waited seven days. Samuel didn't show up. So what does Saul do? He says, you know what? We can't wait any longer. I'm just going to offer the sacrifice myself. Big no-no. You're not a priest. You have no right to do that. That's what God specifically lays out. But he is pragmatic. He wants to do what will get the troops excited so they go into war. As we saw here, he builds a monument to himself. And then we come to this section here where he's given a very explicit, clear command to wipe out the Amalekites. Um, I know that's a hard teaching. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Some of the, the difficulties, the moral issues that surround the conquest, sometimes it's called. But he doesn't obey the Lord. He keeps the king alive, Agag, and he keeps the best of the flocks. He's not doing what God has commanded him to do as a king. As Mitch said, he's taking rather than giving and serving. He should have done what Samuel did. He should have grieved. That's what we're called to do in our sin. First of all, there's a thing called righteous anger, right? That's what Samuel, he's first, he's angry. You know, anger is, we, we mess up with anger all the time, but anger is an emotion, it's not necessarily bad. Um, There is a time and a place to be angry. God gets angry at times. Jesus got angry at times. He overturned the tables in the temple because they were using it to make money with their greed rather than as a house of prayer. But God created the emotion of anger for us, and it has a place. And really what it should be is anger at sin, whether in ourselves or in the harm of others. I've heard it said, one easy test of whether our anger is good or bad. Are you angry because you have been insulted? Or are you angry because God's name or someone else who is weak and is being hurt, is hurt is, has been sinned against? <laughs> if it's the former, likelihood it is likelihood it's not a righteous anger. If it's the latter, more likely. There, there should have been a righteous anger over his failure, over his lack of obedience. And then there is weeping. Samuel spends the nights crying over the sin. Friends, we, we should be weeping over our sin. Our sin alienates us from God. Our sin destroys, sin itself destroys lives. It doesn't lead anywhere good. It gives a lie. It says it leads somewhere good, but our sin never leads anywhere good. And friends, obviously, as the Scripture tell us, sin ultimately leads to judgment. Now understand, of course, you and I will sin. It's not an if, <laughs> it's a when. You and I will sin. The question is, what then? What then? Are you going to grow more and more comfortable with your sin? Or are you going to grieve over it and turn from it? Are uh, you going to find a way to excuse it? Right? That's what uh, Saul does here. Uh, he actually finds a way to sort of cloak it in godliness, right? Uh, we, we, we did this really, we disobeyed God really so that we could ultimately offer a sacrifice. That's why we did this. He's going to cloak it and hide it in a self-righteousness. Or do you grieve over it? I can't tell you how many people have I've talked to. They find excuses, and I do this in my own heart, so this is not, find ways to excuse sin and sometimes even do this very thing. Well, God wants me to be happy, so therefore, Doing what is in direct disobedience to the scriptures must be the right thing. (laughs) What are we doing? We're cloaking our sin in godliness. There should be a, a deep sense of how sin is destructive to my own heart. Destructive to the people around me. And really grievous to the heart of God. With Saul we see the opposite. Him falling deeper and deeper into sin. But then what happens? Seventeen to twenty-three, Samuel confronts him about this very thing and calls him to obedience. Samuel clarifies the sin. Saul, God made you king. You are nothing. You know that. He made you the head of all of Israel. He anointed you to be a, to be king, and then he sent you on a mission. Is a straightforward, clear mission: wipe out the Amalekites, wipe them out entirely. Why didn't you obey? This wasn't a question of it wasn't crystal clear what God was asking or no, it was very clear. And Saul's answer is, Well, I, I did, but the people took the spoil, which kind of changes the, uh, the emphasis here as well, uh, Now it's not so much on the sacrifice to the Lord as now he's blaming the people. <laughs> it's the people's fault. They're the ones who took the spoil. I couldn't do anything about it. I was just, you know, the king sitting back and doing nothing, right? No. The Lord, in Samuel's response to him, tells him the Lord delights in obedience more than sacrifice. To obey is better than all the fat of the rams offered to the Lord. He actually compares it to, he says, rebellion to divination. uh, Which is very actually telling because here we see the beginning of Saul's sin and its rebellion. And if you've read Samuel, we'll maybe get to this later on someday, over the... But it ends with divination. Paul, Saul turning to the medium, to the dead. Instead of consulting the Lord, he consults a witch, the witch of Endor, to try to consult the dead to understand the will of God. I want to talk a minute just about the conquest, because some people say, well, Pastor Rick, wait a minute, you're skipping over this hardest thing here, and that is to go wipe entirely wipe out the Amalekites. And I would agree that is one of the harder teachings in the Bible. Um, to go wipe out an entire nation of, of people. It goes back to when they enter into the promised land. Uh, so they leave Egypt, Exodus. Moses leads them out. Then through Joshua, brings them into the land, and the command is to entirely wipe out the Canaanites. Now, talk about the sins of the Canaanites. They were a wicked people. They offered their children up to the gods. Um, they had cult prostitutes and so forth. Still, this is a hard teaching. Entirely wipe them out. Um, this did not, does not fit the Geneva Convention rules of war and engagement, right? Uh, you, don't, you don't just entirely wipe out POWs and so forth here. It's a hard teaching. I, I would only say uh, just a few things to try to give it. This is sort of a one-time deal. Um, Israel gets into a lot of battles and is called to a lot of scenarios in which they are not called to do this. So understand this is not a blanket. Way in which they are to engage in war God in a sense uses them to bring his judgment upon the Canaanites and here specifically the Amalekites it's a unique word it's harem which means to devote to the Lord to entirely destroy them and you might still say well Pastor Rick he's still saying he can God would command to wipe out men and children and babes and, and all of these sort of innocent people well Uh, Paul Copan, he's a theologian, did sort of a a deep study of this and makes a a strong argument that that language of completely destroy, and even the terminology men and women and children, uh, does actually not refer to non-combatants. It's a typical language of the day in which you would say to utterly defeat. And we have evidence from outside literature that that is the way that terminology was used. And we have evidence from the scripture itself. Okay, so, for example, Saul says he entirely wipes out the Amalekites except for the king and the animals, right? Well, David fights the Amalekites later on. Well, how did that happen then? Because not all of the non-combatants were wiped out. Even in Hezekiah's time, there are Amalekites. In Esther's time, Haman is a descendant of Agag, who is the king. So. Eve's wife didn't seem to continue to live on, and his children. So it, it does seem that that terminology does not mean you literally kill all of the civilians. It does mean, however, you do take no prisoners. You wipe out the army when you go to war. But here's the point. It was to guard against the influence of evil upon Israel that they would not become like the nations that they had been called to conquer. And by the way, Israel faces the same judgment when they fail and they rebel against God, God raises up the Babylonians or the Assyrians against them. And I think what we see here really is a picture of the final judgment. So people who say, I can't understand God ever calling them to continue to wipe out a people. Maybe there's a lack of understanding of the holiness of God and where we're heading in the end. There is a judgment to come upon the whole earth. And this temporary judgment only foreshadows what is to come upon all the earth in the day of judgment. But here's the point, going back to the scriptures themselves here. God calls us to obey. He calls us to obedience here. And there are blessings that come with obedience. I know that word obey has become a bad word. Right? We, we don't like that word obey. And even Christians don't like that word obey very much. Um, by the way, World War II, uh, thinking of Memorial Day, why did so many people voluntarily sign up? Because they felt a call to obedience, a call to go and serve their country. Jesus said, he who loves me obeys my word. It's the evidence of someone who truly loves the Lord. In fact, the Bible's full of commands. What's the point of a command if not to obey? Right. That's the point of a command. Now understand, of course, this is not an obedience that comes apart from faith. That's called dead works. That's called ritual or empty ceremonies. This is a faith that leads to obedience. That's the outpouring of faith. Friends, sometimes we even have to obey even if we don't fully understand why. It's an act of faith itself to trust God and to obey him even when we don't fully grasp the picture. Repentance, though, should lead to obedience. If Saul really repented, really would have recognized his failure as disobedience and turned to the Lord, of course God would have forgiven him. Of course he would have another opportunity to try to serve the Lord as a good king. See, repentance doesn't mean just feeling sorry. (laughs) Feeling sorry, feeling remorse, feeling guilty for what you've done. Actually, the Hebrew word shuv literally means to turn around. It's as if you're walking in one direction and you do a complete about-face and start heading in the other direction. That's what it means to repent, according to the uh, Hebrew word. The New, the New Testament Greek word, metanoia, means to change your mind. So your thinking is in one direction and your thinking then all of automatically goes in a different direction. And really, when you think about it, you, you can't sit in your pew there and repent. It's not possible. You can, you can feel bad for your sin, but to repent is when you get out the door, right? So to repent is saying, I am no longer going to continue in this illicit affair. I am no longer going to continue in this bitter attitude of unforgiveness. I'm no longer going to engage in my addiction. And of course, we continue to fall back in sin and need to repent once again and over and over trusting the Lord for grace. Now, understand, it's not payment for sin. It's not the same thing. You're not saying, uh, uh, say ten prayers, right? And then you'll be forgiven. That's not what we mean by obedience. That's, That's putting sacrifice above obedience again, right? It's to trust God for forgiveness and then trying to walk in newness of life. If Saul had turned direction, if he had changed his mind about what is right and good here, the Lord would forgive him and he would continue on as he calls us to do. 24 to 31, true repentance is God-centered. That's what Saul missed. It's God-centered. I mean, we see here that Saul appears to repent. He looks like he does, right? He, he actually uses all the right words, but you can judge for yourself. He says to Saul when he's confronted about his sin, I have sinned. We can't ask for a better confession than that right i have transgressed the commandment of the lord i feared the people and i shouldn't have done that all the right lingo is used in his repentance but but what first of all he's blaming the people i feared the people for what they did he's shifting the blame it reminds me of the garden of eden right It wasn't my fault, Lord. It was the woman, Eve, that you put in the garden here with me. She's the reason why I sinned. And Eve says, it wasn't me. It was the serpent that made me do it, right? You're always shifting the blame. You're the king, Saul. There's no excuse. Also notice who he asks pardon from. He turns to Samuel and says, pardon me. As if Samuel has the ability to forgive sins. It's to the Lord he should be asking for pardon. Even saying, The Lord your God to Samuel. And then, of course, what does he follow up his request, his uh, confession with? And now, Samuel, would you follow me back out so that I can be honored among the people? <laughs> what is going on here ultimately is that Saul doesn't want to lose the support of Samuel, who's very popular among the people, he's like a politician. And he'll say and do what he needs to do to make sure Samuel comes out so that he can be honored. He tears Samuel's robe as he falls down and Samuel gives him that prophetic word. So will God tear the, tear the kingdom from you and give it to someone else. And ultimately, we'll see who that is in David. But friends, repentance doesn't make it about us. It doesn't make it about how it looks to others. Repentance is before God. Saul is still worried about the people. He's still worried about what it's going to look like to have Samuel against him. His reputation. There's a difference between actually being repentant and looking like you're repentant. Right? As Samuel, I mean, Saul wants to look repentant, even if he isn't truly repentant. Uh, again, he's, he's sorry that he got caught, right? <laughs> like a kid. <laughs> Don't ask me how I found a picture of a kid in a prison, but, you know. Um, but it's, a, it's, the, it's the look of a kid who got caught in his, his, his wrongdoing and is going to say and do anything he can to show his remorse so he doesn't get in more trouble. Right, friends, confessing your sins to others, that may be a good thing. But there's no one who can offer you forgiveness but God. Samuel is still focused on the fear of man rather than the fear of the Lord. That's why Samuel talks about another king and a better one. And the way David is described is a man after God's own heart. A man who's going to do what is right in the eyes of God, regardless of how that looks on the outside. Now David, we'll come to this later on, has his own sins. In fact, he may even be a bigger sinner than Saul. But his sin is not trying to please everyone around him not trying to play the part of a politician, trying to make sure he looks good wherever he goes. Friends, when it comes to repentance for us as well, true repentance is really about our relationship with God. If you have some unconfessed sin, I encourage you, go to prayer. Go to God in prayer now. Ask him for forgiveness. Ask him for grace. That's where it matters. It doesn't matter what the people around you think. The scripture says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. If the entire world thinks bad of you, but God looks at you and says, that's my daughter and I love her and she's going to be with me forever, who cares what the rest of the world says? That's all that ultimately matters. That's the heart of David, by the way, against you, You only have I sinned, O Lord, and done what is evil in your sight. He understands that sin is primarily about a vertical relationship with God. Friends, if you are struggling with some sin, of unconfessed sin, I would also say then meditate on the cross. Jesus died for you. That's what it took to save you. And God was willing to do it. Whatever it takes. And what it took is the death of his son. And then ask God for help. <laughs> You're not going to do this by yourself, that's for sure. God, give me the grace, the strength going forward. Give me the power to change. That, that sin is my old self. That's not me anymore. Help me to put that in the rearview mirror. Help me to continue to move forward. And then keep moving. Keep making forward progress. Don't let your sin tear you down. This is another thing pastorally I see often is people are still living in their past sins. It's as if you're allowing Satan to use the sin again in your life. Let it go and continue to grow and move forward. Let it be in a sense a positive as we see here with Saul that you learn from your failures in the past only that you might be more faithful going forward. God calls us to true repentance. Repentance as a Christian is unavoidable, right? It's unavoidable. By the way, we start the Christian life with repentance. That's how it starts repent and believe. So we begin by recognizing the weight of our own sin. You can't trust a Savior until you realize you, need, you have something to be saved from, right? So first, it begins with a recognition of my need and of my failure to obey God. But then it continues with ongoing rooting out of sin. It doesn't stop on the day that you come to faith. It continues for the rest of the Christian life. As you begin to reflect and be convicted of sin, you repent, you grow, you continue to move forward, and then eventually you find yourself in glory. (laughs) That's the path of the Christian life. The real test for Saul was time. Really, that was what it was. I mean, we see Saul. It may, we could look at this picture of Saul and say, oh, there's a lot of fishy things happening with his repentance here. But if we really saw from this point forward, he actually did seek obedience, would say, okay, we misread it. He, he really did have true repentance here. But what happens from this part is he grows more and more comfortable with his sin. He grows worse and worse. And this seems to be no true and real repentance. But I'm thankful that God raised up another king. Not David. Jesus. <laughs> God raised up the sinless king and the savior who had nothing to repent of and then lays down his life for us as sinners who need a savior. So think about Memorial Day. We have a powerful parable, a picture of love. Jesus himself said, Greater love has no one than this, then he laid down, that he laid down his life for his friends. When God sees us and looks at us, he sees us as his friends. His friends. <laughs> Enough that he would lay down his life so that our sins could be forgiven, we could walk in newness of life, and we could be with him forever. Pray with me. Father, in many ways, the story of Saul is a tragic one in the scriptures. We wish, we might wish, we might have hoped that there was true repentance and that the first king of Israel was a success story. But Lord, may we learn and listen from his example. Lord, I wonder, I would think for a lot of us, there is a sin that comes to mind. Something in our life that we're struggling with. We bring it before you. You're merciful. You're kind. There there are no secrets before you, Lord. We bring that sin. We lay it before your altar. We look to the cross where we find our forgiveness. And we ask for your help to transform us. Lord, it's an ongoing process. It won't be the last sin that we struggle with in this life. But help us to continue to grow in grace with true repentance and faith until the day we are with the King of kings and the Lord of lords in your very presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.